Speaking of fame and infamy, dude, this movie. Yes. Let's get into it, man. Right now. Let's do it. Let's do this. Welcome. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 7, Part 2, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. So, Blue Velvet. It's our second David Lynch film that we're discussing here. And it is your, uh, I mean, you're still within your your first month of losing your Lynch virginity. Uh, no, it's been a couple months. It's been a couple because we're on, we're on. So, what, okay. I mean, so, yeah, months. yeah. It's been a couple months. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, but you're right. I mean, it, it's not, not very long because we, we did episode one, Wild at Heart. And then as soon as that was done, I, I went and I watched um, Eraserhead. Like I watched, I binged binged Twin Peaks. I watched the entire thing. uh, First season, second season, third season. I still, um, I started watching rabbits. I haven't seen the whole thing of rabbits. I think I just didn't have time to sit down and watch it. Um, Mm -hmm. Seems very experimental for me, right? You got rabbits as one of those. And then he's got a new one where he's talking to a monkey. Um, And I watched part of that. I watched about, I think almost 10 minutes out of 17. And I just, I was too tired. I did it really late at night, but I, the next one after this, cause I, I was divided, man. I thought, you know, man, what do I want to watch next? Blue velvet or lost highway dune. You know, what do I, what do I want to watch? Cause I really want to watch dune. I've never seen any of these. And I'm like, you know, so I've wanted to watch dune for a long time, especially dune. But when you brought up blue velvet, I thought, you know, you've said that blue velvet's kind of, and I, I've read elsewhere that blue velvet's kind of the movie that when people talk about him, this is like the movie. Well, other than Eraserhead, yeah. Yeah, other than Eraserhead, yeah. But these two movies, um, Eraserhead, um, because it was his first major movie like that, um, and because it was so personal, and he had kind of free reign over so much, and then uh, Blue Velvet, because after Dune and after um, Elephant Man, which I'm also excited to watch, that both of those that he, he wasn't super happy, man. He was especially sad going through Dune. Like he was very, it was not a yeah. good experience. And that this was him coming back to that place as a director where he had control and so much control that he even convinced the producer to give him final cut rights. Yep. And that yeah, was that, really important for him. Yeah. That's a big thing for Lynch. He, and, and I suspect that that's why he didn't care for, I, I think he didn't care for Dune because it was just such a huge project. But uh, he didn't have complete creative control. As a matter of fact, I I, I do recall before season three of uh, Twin Peaks came out, it was announced that they were going to start filming it. And that, what was it, him him and Mark Frost were working together. I believe that's his name. Yeah, yeah. And then soon after, very soon after, uh, it was announced that this would not be happening. If memory serves, it had to do with creative control. Because he was not given creative control, they couldn't work this out. And Lynch needs—he needs the floor, man. You know, he needs the entire floor. Yeah. And thankfully, he gets it sometimes because then we get something that we cannot get anywhere else. So when he was finally given creative control, that's when, like, uh, what was it? Was it Showtime or HBO that that ultimately released the third Showtime. season? Of, okay. Yeah, Showtime is like do whatever you want. But yeah. Blue Velvet, about a college kid who takes a break from school and upon returning home finds a human ear 
laying on the ground in the grass in a field. And he becomes obsessed with putting together the clues of where this ear came from and uh, finds himself involved with some pretty shady characters, the likes of which only Lynch could create. It's directed by him. It's written by him. It stars Kyle uh, McLachlan, which is also in, from Twin Peaks, and Dune, and Laura Dern, and Dennis Hopper, among others. Jack Nance, of course. So this is your first time uh, recently, yesterday or the day before, something like that, was your first time seeing Lou Velvet. And uh, you heard me talk it up. And I know that's a dangerous thing to do because the hype, you know, yeah. it could ruin it. Make it ruin it. So you turn on Blue Velvet and you're sitting there. And within like the first 10 minutes, you know, what's going through your head? What are you? Are you hating it? Are you loving it? In the first 10 minutes, I loved it. My The initial impression, for one, I love oldies music. You know, I grew up on that. It's funny, you know, I mentioned my upbringing a little bit earlier talking about Christmas and stuff uh, and nostalgia a little bit and conservative values and other things uh, in the upbringing. And some of that's played out a lot in, in his film, you know, that there's that that feeling of, you know, wholesome, wholesome America. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like straight up America, dude. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the, the red fire engine with the guy waving and going by and you got the white picket picket fences and stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, this is like full blown Americana stuff and the music playing and hardware um, store, the hardware store, the whole the whole nine yards, you know. And yeah. so uh, even young, young high school guy throwing rocks at a one of those fire barrels, you know, you can put trash in, yeah. or, you know, have a little bonfire thing. And so throwing rocks at it, you know, walking through tall grass and stuff. And um, so, so, so much of that and the feel of, of the music and the feel that everything's great. And then real quickly, not only something bad happening real within the first couple minutes, something really bad happening. Okay. The dad ends up having a stroke. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he's laying on the ground and he's stroked out and everything. And, and, and then, uh, in in wonderful Lynchian style, the, the camera goes down, down real super close to the grass and goes right through the dirt. And you start to see these crazy beetles and bugs everywhere and this kind of wild noise. And and right away, I knew I said, I'm I'm game. I'm down for watching this because and I, I anticipated some other issues. I knew I knew what I was getting into. And I have some <laughs> I have some warnings for people. But um, at the same time, the the underbelly of nostalgia, the and I you could tell that it's it's a uh, it presents itself in a mask. It's happy. It's it's beautiful. It's it's um, wholesome, and yet there's a darkness. There's bugs down in the dirt. It's a, a little bit of a facade. It's not entirely fake, but it's not the whole story. And some of it is hidden. And that underbelly is especially true in nostalgia and in our recollections. And sometimes we like to suppress that um, the reality of what it used to be like in the olden days, the golden era uh, and all of this. And that we, we romanticize it, forgetting that um, crazy weirdness has always been <laughs> and evil and crime and sin and, and wickedness prevailing like all of that's been there every time in history and you and he he summed that up i i feel in a picturesque way a beautiful way within the first 10 minutes 
through the specifically the sounds. Yeah. If you're not paying close attention, you can watch this whole movie thinking that you're this takes place in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, when I would argue that it's more of an alternate universe, kind of, because the only bits that don't scream 50s, I mean, because the far that the cars, yes, and you know, the from the ambulance to the which looks like a Ghostbuster, you know, mobile to the fire trucks with cop cars, the other cars. Um, just the decor, uh, you know, the white picket fence, all that stuff, the way that people look and, and kind of talk a little bit, uh, even some of the lighting, like at night when they're going, you know, uh, he's walking down the street. A lot of that lighting reflects that of films made in the fifties mm-hmm. with the trees and, and all that. But if you're not paying close attention, you could think that this is just a, you know, takes place in the fifties, but whenever it shows, uh, Sandy, played by Laura Dern, whenever it shows her her with her friends, all of her friends have teased hair from the 80s. And they have, like, 80s clothes on. And they're, she's only around them twice. She's around them at school. And they have, like, big 80s earrings. And then they go to a party toward the end of the movie. And all the chicks have teased out and crimped hair and stuff like that. But everything else, and, and I don't know why that was made like that. It's a mix of times. And I think it's because nostalgia when people reflect on a time um it's more of a feeling and that feeling is not normally just limited to a specific uh year you know it's kind of an accumulation a composite of Mm. sensations and even postures that they may have had at those times and posturing themselves with the world and everything um and that that's the what, what they what they recall from that and i've wondered you know to go back and look to find out what kind of cars those were and and to say you know what years do they span like what what year of a fire truck would that be that's an old school looking fire truck yeah i mean that, yeah the fire truck is it looks super old and and some of the cars none of the cars look new right so you don't have yeah. any situation where it's like oh that's a, a 1989 pontiac like you don't you're yeah. not seeing that um and and i love those muscle cars too man i do i loved frank's car I loved uh, uh, Kyle uh, McLaughlin's car. It was also, you could tell that the car was old enough that um, there wasn't a seatbelt that goes across. There was no seatbelt up high. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it had the right. bucket seats and stuff you know, prior to tape decks. And so you just had the radio. And I, I grew up with some of that, man. My dad, he had 61 and 62 Cadillacs. We had a mint condition 1962 Caddy with the, the big black Batman fins kind of in mm-hmm. the back he had ones that had the cone shaped lights and ones that had kind of the lights flat. yeah yeah and so we had we had both versions we had the, the 61 and the 62 but the 62 was in mint condition the other ones were for parts cars nice but it was awesome it had the bucket seats and stuff all original but yeah it was just radio you know i had the dial the old school dial on it mm-hmm. you know so yeah it was it was really cool to just the initial the initial feel right away was something that I like, yeah. you know, that's, that plays into my, scratches that, that itch for you. I had funny thing. I thought that I had seen twin peaks several years ago, but what I had only seen was the first episode. And I, I, for some reason, uh, you know, I lived the last 20 years thinking that I had seen it and I only saw, I, I didn't see all of twin peaks until two or three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I finally, you know, watched it all. And then, of course, when the 
when the uh, third season came out. I watched it when it came out. But so I so I haven't seen Blue Velvet since I've seen Twin Peaks. So I didn't I didn't make a lot of the wood connections and see all the similarities between Twin Peaks in that in and Blue Velvet and first of all um i found out later that I, I apparently blue velvet was the inspiration for twin peaks and you can see that all over the place yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I you know and i don't know if if uh lynch has a thing for like wood but you know they're in they live in lumberton and the radio station is w-o-o-d and then even the uh the police station when you go it, it says you know lumberton police station but then under that almost like a family crest. It has like a, a really crappy painting, which I believe was painted by David Lynch of a, just a, a, a tree limb. that's just like hand painted on there. And then of course you, there's the, the scenes that every time they showed the, um, the little um, local diner there, every time they'd showed it, one of those um, trucks that, that carry log. logs would go by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they had like the a lumber mill there. And then of course, Twin Peaks, has you know their crappy hand painted sign with the trees all over it. Yeah, Agent, Agent Cooper is obsessed with uh, needing to know what kind of trees are growing there in Twin Peaks, and then you got the lumber mill there, and then you've got the log lady, who's named after log because she carries a log around her. So there's all these weird wood references that that Lynch is really into that he uses in both worlds. I thought that was really interesting, and and I didn't, I hadn't caught that before i think a lot of people play up the idea that there's a freudian reference to to the wood and all of that right um mm -hmm. that it's a like euphemistic <laughs> and i think really? that oh yeah yeah yeah. he's been accused of using those euphemistically you know and i don't i don't want to chalk it up as that you know there's part of me that says yeah i think he knows more about psychoanalysis than he lets on but at the same time, I think a lot of people want to see more of that than what may really be there, even with this. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that um, there are certain things um, that he really enjoys about America and the American scene and what invokes certain images like like uh, industrial parts of the town. OK, smokestacks. The same thing with with logging towns. You know, it, it would be. It's more it's more recognizable even than coal mining, plus the feel of it, you know, the feel of a logging town, um, it, which he goes for that a lot for the feel of something, even for this show. I, that's one of the things that I was most surprised about. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but one of the things I was most surprised about uh, about this was the role of music for him as a director in real time and how he uses music as a mechanism, as a tool to help him kind of gauge the feel of what he's seeing. And so I, I think he does that with certain things and recurring symbols, right? Recurring like the logs or the diner, that kind of thing, or the muscle cars or the oldies music. I think he uses that for the familiarity of it, just like he's always make he loves making films that are American films. Well, he's big into the industrial thing. First of all, I know he loves factories and stuff like that. He really gets off on that and then and the sounds that they make and just the way that they look. But um I feel like almost it, it almost feels like Blue Velvet could be almost a prequel to the twi to Twin Peaks. 
um, you know, Kyle basically, uh, the actor Kyle essentially plays the same character, but graduated to uh, being a professional, you know, being FBI. That, right. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, a yeah. special agent solving a murder. Even the, even like the, you know, the nightclub scenes in, in Twin Peaks and in Blue Velvet are very similar to each other. You know, and then he had lighting. a relationship with Laura Dern. <laughs> and then in yeah, Twin yeah. Peaks, yeah, and then in Twin Peaks, the, the third season, you you find out, oh my gosh, Laura Dern plays into this somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Going it, back. Isn't, yeah. isn't Laura Dern Laura, who he's constantly talking to in the or Diane, rather? Isn't yes, isn't, it's uh, Diane. But you don't you yeah, don't know so, you don't know that's who it is until season three. It's, it's just right. Her. But it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like yeah. that could be. You know, he whenever he did find stuff, that's who he went and he reported to was Sandy. Yes. And then same kind of thing. He when he finds something out, whether it be where to get damn fine coffee or where whether it be something about the, the case that he's working on, um, mm-hmm. then he tells Diane. But and yeah, played by the same actress. So even even like the like the red curtains are in, in Blue Velvet too, like in the nightclub scene. They look very similar. And in the, the and in the apartment. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. they're red curtains there and it's thick and it's kind of that dark almost blood red. Mm-hmm. Uh in in the where the windows open and the wind is coming through, you know. Yeah. It almost looks like the curtain call you'd see for for a theater, you know. So a bit of trivia I did learn today that in the original script, the original ending, uh Dorothy, um played by uh Isabella Russellini, mm-hmm. uh, uh, commit suicide in the original script. I also heard the original script was like four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it involved like drug trafficking and stuff. Like it was, yeah. And they had to like gut a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Another yeah, sex yeah, scene yeah. on the roof and yeah, stuff like and that. There was, a, but... there was a nipple burning scene. Yes. That, that, and he said it bummed him out that he had to take that out. Kind of like he, he, and he, nobody made him take anything out he had final cut so he was able to do whatever he wanted with this but mm-hmm. he said you know you watch some stuff and you just go yeah you know it's it's maybe too far and he they, they made him i believe take the part out of eraser head where there's this weird erotic scene where women two women are kind of tied up on a bed and there's like electricity or something with it uh going on shocking and stuff and so they they took that out of eraser head and then in this one uh, they took out a scene where uh, a lady basically burns her nipple. And he was, he talked about how they did that. Like, how do you burn a nipple without burning yourself? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how do you do that? And so it was kind of a neat trick. He actually, in a rare moment, he admitted how they did that. Cause mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty, he's pretty uh, secretive about stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. He likes to, but he said that it, in a way though, it wasn't his idea. It was actually something brought up by the woman in the movie. And there are some people in this movie, a lot of the, the people in the, the crowd and the background, backdrop people, uh, the extras, those are uh, locals. Like a lot of those people are actually locals. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And there's like a whole bunch of things, actually, that I learned about this movie that were, you know, fun little factoids. You know, how he met Isabella in yeah. a restaurant. Right. You know, I, <laughs> and it was just kind of, you know, it was actually originally going to be a different woman. Uh, the part played by Laura Dern, the people they wanted originally to have. What's the girl's name from uh, uh, Pretty in Pink? What's that girl's name? Oh, yeah. They wanted Molly Ringwald. 
Yeah, they wanted Molly Ringwald. Yeah, and yeah. The but Molly's <laughs> parents were like, "No." <laughs> yeah, yeah. They read the script and they're like, "Oh heck no!" <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, Willem Dafoe was actually considered for Frank Booth until until Hopper said, "This is me," and they were nervous this, about him. Yeah, yeah, they were nervous because he he had a reputation. Man, he was a he was a drug user. Uh, he he mm-hmm. would use drugs and alcohol to get into character but he had just gotten out of treatment he had just gotten out of treatment was kind of doing a a little uh comeback for himself and i think it's weird that my two favorite movies of his he did hoosiers which i actually haven't seen but did hoosiers river's edge and um yeah i haven't oh bro river's edge and uh in in blue velvet and river's edge is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies Mm. and his character in that is whacked out too not evil whacked out you kind of feel sorry for him but a really uh a really neat character and i can't see anybody playing it other than dennis hopper and i absolutely can't see anyone playing playing frank, frank. Uh, i mean dude he just not even default it's one of my favorite yeah. antagonists yeah. ever he's no, wicked yeah, no. and I you mean, know it would be a completely different thing it's crazy because there's the um the gas that he's huffing right and he comes up with it because yeah. originally going to be helium. That was the original. That, that was yeah. David Lynch's idea that he would, when he's huffing this gas, uh, that mm-hmm. when he's, you know, he puts this thing on his, and he's huffing it really hard, you know, in the central way, getting himself real worked up and everything that when he, when he would take it off, his, his voice would be like really high pitch and stuff. And, and yeah. it was funny listening to, to Hopper talk about that. And for him to say, you know, and, and for them to go, you know, it's actually kind of more messed up if you think about it, the way that Lynch's brain is with this, because, you know, at least with this gas, it's getting him sexually. Like, that's something people will use yeah. for sexual stuff, you know, um, it, you know, it's like using that uh, punch and balloon nitrous stuff, you know, a bunch of whippets yeah, yeah. or whatever and, and doing it. There's a sensual dynamic sometimes to that party stuff, but but helium He's like, that's not even giving you any high. That's just changing your voice. So that yeah. makes the person who's doing that even a crazier. real cuckoo crazy. I mean, that's like, yeah. whoa. And, and to get in the, the mood where you're saying, you know, mommy, mommy, mommy. And with that voice. And I'm thinking that would be, that would be dark, dude. Yeah, that it would. would. Yeah. It, to clarify, it was Dennis Hopper's idea to, uh, you know, I think they were going to overdub his voice or whatever using helium. And that that was supposed to represent helium. And Dennis Hopper was like, well, how about this? Uh, I can't remember the name of the stuff, but how about this other stuff? And Lynch Animal was like, nitrate. what is that? So mm-hmm. Hopper told him. And Lynch was like, all right, well, you know, we'll see how that goes. And maybe not, you know, put your voice in there. And, and uh, so they stuck with that. I think because uh, Lynch was concerned that people might laugh when they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and I can see that happening. Because while Dennis Hopper's character, Frank Booth, was very scary, he was also funny when he would talk, you know, mm-hmm. when he would talk about Pep's Blue Ribbon and, you know, <laughs> really memorable lines in there. Oh, my gosh, dude. It, it was hilarious because he goes, Hanukkah, that, Pep's Blue Ribbon. And he says it <laughs> yeah. like in this really, really crazy way. It's just yeah. so funny, man. Like path, path blue. Like it's like this really intense thing. And, yeah. uh, and there's a couple references. And in fact, people, people have 
tried to, I, I've read some people doing analysis that say that the, the different beers that people drink kind of show different parts of the, the ego and the id and the super ego for Freudian stuff. Cause you have three mm -hmm. mentioned, you have that the dad, uh, the fatherly figure in this drinks, bud, the king of beers, you know? Yeah. And then you've got Heineken, uh, which is the the younger guy, the ego yeah, the of the film, the hipster German beer, the, exactly. And then you've got the 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 Pabst Blue Ribbon, right? And so you've got, and so they that's that's white Frank. trash Americana. So I've actually read some cool analysis, man, about how the beers indicate different parts of the psyche. And yeah, I didn't read that. Film. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, Frank Booth, man, that character is one of my favorite antagonists of all time. He's just so memorable and i'm just uh whenever i see scenes with hopper in him i'm just blown away by how i mean like when when that dude is singing that um the candy coated clown song or whatever oh yeah and he's just standing there looking at him and he, can't, he can hardly keep it together like he's just it hits him so emotionally hard yeah, Dean and Stockwell then, sings that song. And, uh, and when and then when they're on the uh, beach or whatever it is, and not the beach, but when they go for the drive, and that chick is doing that dance on the car, and that that's, and the song's playing again. Yeah, I think that's where my wife lost it. I think I think she was already at a place where she's like, "This is dark," you know what I mean? She mm -hmm. she enjoys different types of film, and this one was one of those where she's like, "What is happening? <laughs> like, what what am I enduring with this?" Um, yeah. But that once it got to the scene where the woman is dancing on the top of the car and mm -hmm. he's, he's getting his butt kicked out in public and stuff. I, I think it's, I think it's interesting, though, that Lynch didn't want people to laugh at parts of the movie that he didn't think people should laugh. But it was during that scene that he laughed. The rape and, and scene. Laughed. The rape. Yes. The, he, yeah. Yes. And people even even uh, Isabella Rossellini, the, the actress who played that mm -hmm. role. And I I don't know why she got flack. Personally, I loved the way she played that. And I especially loved the scene where she you know, finds out, you know, that uh, Jeffrey's in the closet and she, yeah. she gets him out and she's yelling at him with that knife and, and she's on it, man. Her, there's an intensity in her yeah. and a brokenness. Her, her whole character I thought was amazing. I think, I think the flack that she got was just from herself. I don't think she was kind of like, kind of creepy, like, so that it's not sexualized the fact that she's naked. Yeah, she blamed, yeah, yeah, she blames her. She blamed herself for like uh, you think, yeah. how it came out. But but think about this though, man. Think about number one. This is like the second film she's done, right? Mm -hmm. She did one that was what, White Knights or something. Yeah, and now she's in this this thing with this really popular guy and and all of this and and kind of taken by surprise about it. And she's really familiar with modeling, but not nothing really beyond that. And they have her singing and she's not a trained singer. In fact, she's not a very good singer. And she admits it. She playfully admits, I'm not even a good singer. And I think mm -hmm. that it's kind of like you brought up with Wild at Heart, where sometimes he, he uh, Lynch almost thrives on that, that people aren't so good. And sometimes they may have to make the, the actor say, look, don't play the parts so, so well. You know, yeah. you, you know, your acting needs to be just off a little bit. Right. And, and her singing was that, right? And so, but I felt that her acting in the whole thing, I felt like her acting was so good. But when she, the way that her brain thought, when she said she wanted to come down the steps at, at the end and she's coming down in front of the, the Jeffrey's parents' house and she's walking out and she has her arms kind of held in a way where the palms would be facing forward, right? 
Mm -hmm. um, a helplessness. And in, in a documentary, uh, Mysteries of Love, the way her brain worked about this, that she said that, that she wanted to, to embody something similar to the young, the picture of the young girl during the Vietnam war, right? Where she's running and she's naked and she's got her hands out that that's what she was trying to do. But she, she thought of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so to get flack and, and her, her agents, dude, they dropped her man. Like it was hot. As soon as they watched that, as soon as the screening was over, they're like, we don't want nothing to do with you. And I thought, you know, people can have criticisms of the film. They, they can think that, that Lynch once again has gone too far. There's there's some disturbing junk in there. Mm -hmm. um, but but to take I think I feel like people really took that out on her in a wicked bad way. And and so I was I was glad to see that that Lynch stuck around with her. In fact, they dated for a while after that. You know, oh, that's right. yeah, yeah, they dated for a while, and that she was in, she was in Wild at oh. Heart, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I'm glad he did because I, I think she did excellent, and she, she did a really good job, and very compelling actress, in a very, very difficult role in a very controversial movie. Let me say this too, man, is that um, I thought it was really cool. Something I learned in this process about Lynch. And how this movie was an awakening for him musically, that he'd always loved music, but that he, he was frustrated as a director because you you do all the different shots and stuff. And he's thinking through the look and the feel and the mood. And then you send it to the to the people who are going to do the composing and they, they make a bunch of the music and they overlay it. And then by the time a director is going to hear it, at least in the past, um, you're number one, you're pretty detached from it. Uh, you kind of just have to trust the the person doing the composing. And then and then it's already into post-production and you're like, oh, no, we got to hurry up and get it done. And so he he took a more central role in this where he worked with uh, what's the guy's name? Well, he worked with the sound, the sound designer, uh, Alan Splett. And I, I think the sound is amazing. I love the, the in, industrial noises that he he brings in and the roaring sounds like uh, during yes. that the sexual encounter. That that turns not only into that kind of roaring and almost a dinosaur animalistic primal, yeah, very primal, uh, to then all of a sudden having Frank and it's it, Frank is roaring and there's a there's a scene too where it's a distorted father, his face the distorted father, which is you know there, there's there's a good reason I don't you know I I know I dogged the euphemistic stuff earlier. There's good reason for a lot of the talk about the Oedipus stuff in this film. There's no question about it, um, you know, but the the sound designer but there was also uh angelo battlementi he was the guy that came in did the, did the score for it worked on a bunch of the music which was amazing the way that they they made even blue velvet how they made it theirs right mm -hmm. and well he, they, they ended up using the original no they no used i'm thinking the, yeah. of the other song i'm thinking of the other song he got involved with it even down to the lyrics and there there's there's a a song in there about dreams with these lyrics and man i I loved it when I heard it. I wanted to know what, what like what the song was. I'm like, I haven't heard that song before. <laughs> That's because they wrote the lyrics for it. There is a yeah. song almost exactly like that. Same feel, same kind of Enya feel. That's what I got out about that. Right. Sound like Enya uh, on the Twin Peaks soundtrack. I don't know what from what episodes, but it's on the soundtrack. It sounds just like that song. 
that's mm-hmm. in Blue Velvet, the one that you're talking about, the Dreams one. Frank, one thing I thought was really amazing about that that involves the two of them is Dorothy's singing Blue Velvet and she's up on the stage. And the way that they, and I, I can just put these two together, that the, the way that Lynch wanted to portray her was that even when they showed her body that she wouldn't be glamorous and when she's singing, that, that she didn't have a natural glamour, that it was, she's painting stuff on, she's pretty, but broken, um, imperfect. Uh, her voice is not stunning. It's not like she's going to have a career doing this. So she doesn't have stuff to fall back on. So she's that. And they kept invoking the idea of that doll, which they did in uh, wild at heart too, the scene of the accident. Uh, Mm -hmm. talking about a porcelain doll feel to that, that he's trying to invoke this with her and she's singing, um, this, this, she's up on the stage at something that looks like the roadhouse from twin peak. But, Mm -hmm. um, as she's singing, she looks over and she sees Frank. And Frank is sitting there and Frank is crying. And in the interview, she was saying that she did not know that he was going to do that. Mm-hmm. And that Hopper, that that it was one of those moments where as he's as he's doing that and the cameras turn around and they're facing Hopper and it was she knew that it was on him, that she's looking straight at him and heightening that by looking at him intimately and singing for him. And he's looking at her and he's crying. One criticism I do have about what you're talking about right now with how he loved her is that I didn't really connect that he was that in love with her until after watching the documentary. I just got that that the guy was crazy and that he, um, you know, everything was of a sexual manner rather than than love. And even when he you know, when they went for the car ride and she was along, she wasn't like the focus of his attention by any means. It was more about the music and even, even to where he's like standing right up in that guy's face, watching this guy, you know, it was, it wasn't about Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And so my only criticism I have about that is if Lynch wanted us to believe that Frank Booth loved her that much to where it was just, he couldn't handle it. Um, I just feel like maybe a couple of things could have been done to portray that a little bit better. Not that we need to be having some kind of empathy for him, mm-hmm. but I thought, I, I think that it would have been a, a cooler dynamic had we been more aware that he's not just crazy and that, but that this is actually about her because I mean, they touch on that a little bit when she says that, that she wants to kill herself, but mm-hmm. he's doing this to keep her alive. Yeah. But for all we know, he's just he's into uh, rape fantasies and or whatever, and he just wants to rape her. I never got any any indication that this was about her and that he was just so in love with her, with her. I do have a uh, a theory on one scene in there that that I picked up on that I thought was symbolic. You know, you talk about the Oedipus was it complex? Yeah, the Oedipus complex. The okay, yeah. There's a lot of mommy mommy going on in this. Yeah, yeah. we're essentially. Someone wants to what have sex with their with their mother or or have that intimacy with the with the womb again or something. It's more complex than that, but at the same time, yeah, the idea is that you uh, the, 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 the connection that the son has with the mother from the from birth and from nursing and then resentment at times and the separation that ultimately happens between a father and learning that oh my gosh my dad is really with my mom <laughs> like you know yeah. and and that Freud believed that this was kind of what made the world go round well i don't know if lynch did this on purpose but i thought that there was some 
continued symbolism with that in the rape scene. I mean, you've got him saying mommy, you know, which is, which is, I mean, just blatant and obvious, but when he takes that rope that you would tie her blue velvet robe around with, yeah, he stuffs one hand, one part, one end in her mouth and then one end in his mouth and then rapes her. And I thought that was symbolic of an umbilical cord. There, there's a whole bunch of that. And I, I would, you know, I, I have a couple of these papers that were done academically that I just didn't have time to read that went deeper into the psychoanalytic dynamic of this and Oedipus and the like. Uh, and I'm interested to see if, if there's analysis that would say that um, the dad and uh, and Jeffrey and Frank are the same person. I know what you're saying. I don't really buy any of that. I don't think it goes that deep. I'm just on oh. the fly. I might be completely talking out of my rear end. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She, she is, I mean, she misses her husband Yeah. and, and uh, there's this about as wholesome as you can get, dude, you know? Yeah. He's, he's, he's practicing some voyeurism, not on purpose, really. He doesn't have a boner for her per se. He has a boner for solving this case and that's why he's there. He's, he's not, you know, he's only in the closet watching because he, he has to really, but he, he um, you know, he's about as wholesome as you can get. And, and she recognizes that, 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 that there's no threat here. Misses her husband calls, calls him, you know, and kind of pretends does this role-playing thing. Cause it's the, you know, she, she needs him, wants him so bad and uh, pretends that's him. And she does ask at one point for him to hit her. Because she's all kinds of messed up, just like Frank Booth is. We don't know yeah, exactly yeah, why. Yeah. I, I would I would gather that stems probably back when she was a child. Uh, maybe she was messed with, and, and, mm -hmm. and she, that tends to really screw somebody up. But uh, he won't do it. The part that he's crying is when he finally breaks down, and he does hit her the second time they get they hook up. He's just so confused. He's having fun because he's getting laid. You know, and he by this beautiful woman, and he's having a good time. And then she's like, "Hit me!" And this is the second time that she's asked him to do this. So he finally kind of gets frustrated and, and does it, and realizes that he let this evil side of him come out, and feels really bad because you know he's thinking with a little head, and not the big one. And, and so finally, when that's over and he's at home, he's like, "You know, man, she's going through hell. What am I? What am I thinking? Why would I do that? Even if she asked me?" And and so. Yeah. You know, yeah. He broke down, but I, I guess I would, the only thing I would say is that it, I've read in the book, you know, when he's talking about it in the book that I've got that Lynch on Lynch, there, there's this idea that when he talks about light and dark and when he talks about the nostalgia of the, the pristine white picket fence and the grodiness of what's in the earth, the underbelly, that these opposites need that he pushes them both to extremes because he believes that they're actually essentially complementary to each other and that, that to, they need to be almost synthesized to be fully understood. And that even their characters like, um, uh, Laura Dern's character and Isabella's character, that there's a, there's an imbalance and that it balances itself. And then, uh, Frank and Jeffrey, that their characters have that darkness and light and that the two of them, that there's a, a kind of 
there's a relationship between those like a shadow, right? Like an archetype in the shadow, mm -hmm. um, which we've mentioned before. It just made me wonder about that. And so I'm interested to read uh, more about it and to see what people say. But the movie overall, you know, and, and as a warning, right, to the viewers who are wondering, hey, should I watch this? <laughs> you know, it's good to go to IMDb and check out the parental stuff on there for this one. Because um, they're, it's kind of all mainly at one part, really, if you think about it, uh, the sexuality in it takes but it's it takes up a pretty decent sized chunk of time there's actually two i guess there's two scenes that are pretty intense uh and one of them lasts for probably five minutes i mean it's you know but it's multiple different things taking place it's not just a sex scene for five minutes <laughs> yeah and so but i i would encourage that but the movie is deep it's personal it's awesome how about a rating? Let's get a rating from you. What do you rate uh, out of five stars? What do you rate David Lynch's Blue Velvet? I I would say probably four point seven. You know, four four point six, four point seven. So you've changed yeah. a little bit then. Yes, I did first, actually. First time we talked very briefly, and you yes. put it at the uh, out of a list of four things that yeah. you've watched of David Lynch, you put it at the bottom. Well, it might, it might still be, I mean, Twin Peaks, I'd put it a five. <laughs> so, yeah. so Twin Peaks is a five, you know, Wild at Heart. I loved it. I forget what I gave Wild at Heart. I don't remember the, the rating, um, but no, but you're, you're right. When we talked about it, I was like, well, I don't know, man. Um, I don't like it as much as, you, you know, these ones, Eraserhead and, and whatnot. Um, but the thing is, is that it was funny because in the book, they talk about how the screening of it was terrible. It was really, really, really yeah. bad. And people were like, you know, somebody should shoot him. Right. I mean, people were really mad about it and didn't like it. It was picketed in different places and stuff, but that there was a, there was a, a, a person from uh, the New Yorker, a woman writer who basically encouraged people to give it a second watch and said, if you watch it a second time, you know, your first time, your gut reaction is going to be like, number one, what the heck did I watch? If you, especially if you've never seen Lynch before, you might even be revolted. <laughs> you might be like, what in the heck is this? Because you're in, you're anticipating nostalgia and, you know, everything else. And you're getting this crazy, crazy story, you know, weird. Why are there Franks in the world kind of thing? Um, but if you watch it a second time and if you really think about it, and you're not just simply a passive receiver of bizarre images and storylines, but you really think about it. I'm not saying you're going to love it, but I would say that you won't throw it in the heap. You know, you, you'll, pr you will probably be more generous than Ebert was. And Ebert just, I, th I think he had a thing, man. He just didn't like Lynch or something. He didn't well, like he, Lynch he, stuff. He also called it a comedy, which I don't understand. Well, he called it a comedy. And this is, there is, I guess, there is a little bit of sense to this, a little bit. And I actually took a screenshot of, of what what Ebert said. Yeah, so he said this at RogerEbert.com. Blue Velvet contains scenes of such raw emotional energy that it's easy to understand why some critics have hailed it as a masterpiece. A film this painful and wounding has to be given special consideration. And yet those very scenes of stark sexual despair are the tip-off to what's wrong with the movie. 
They're so strong that they deserve to be in a movie that is sincere, honest, and true. But Blue Velvet surrounds them with a story that's marred by sophomoric satire and cheap shots. The director is either denying the strength of his material or trying to diffuse it by pretending it's all part of a, of a campy in-joke. You know what sucks about that? That whole thing he just said? He's laying rules and guidelines to art. And David Lynch is not about that. If you read that, to me, he's saying, this doesn't belong here. It belongs with this. And if you do that, if you follow this rule and then stick it in this template, then it will work. And uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree more. But I, I at least understood what he was saying. And I can understand, I can understand the mindset of that kind of a critic. I'm, I'm with you though on this to say, you know, even if, even if it ended with a dump, like that there was something super terrible that happened, right? Really graphic, super emotionally charged. And then it was dumps. To me, I would say that's comedic relief. And that seeing it in this way allows you to process it in a way that, that might be more realistic and not just so emotionally charged to where you're processing it through this like supercharged thing of, Oh my gosh, what did I just watch? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and there is, there is an argument to say that, you know, certain acts warrant that, um, you know, like, like uh, take, take the Holocaust. Right. I can't, it would be difficult to imagine too many Schindler's list with the badumps, you know, in there to say, well, it's easier to talk about the Holocaust if we have a funny joke following, you know, somebody getting killed or something. Um, but at the same time, we do have that a little bit. We have that with, with things like family guy where Peter's eating a chip while the Nazis are coming in, trying to find, and he's in there and they're all like all the Jewish people down in the cellar, like, and he's sitting there and he very slowly goes and he eats another chip again. That's totally terrible if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And that that's the Holocaust. But yet at the same time, we're able to have conversations about that. And it look, it's stirring the conversation. People are having serious conversations about this exact topic. So it did, in fact, create that an environment to talk about that. Um, and yet it didn't feel like, you know, people could actually sit around and watch this film. I just. So, yeah, I don't agree with Ebert on it, but again, I, I can understand. Yeah. What do you give this, man? Like, you've seen it before. You saw it. Mm -hmm. You saw it back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. I was, I think I was watching E.T. or something, man. I was like eight years old, dude. And so you're watching this bugger. And then years later, you come, you come back to it again and you watch it and you watch a documentary. Have you, have you ever seen that documentary before, Chad? No. Mm -hmm. No. So this is the first time you'd seen that documentary. Yeah. What did you think of the film? Like, well, when I first saw it, like I said, it, 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 I, I saw it when it basically when it first came out, and even then, man, I think I saw it with my dad, and uh, we were just a huge fan of, of all kinds of uh, stuff that was, uh, you know, indie or or disturbing, gory, whatever. And I didn't need to. It hadn't achieved this cult status that it has, but it to me it already felt like it. I, I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was great. I mean, I was only like sixteen when I saw it, so there were some some things that maybe didn't uh, really affect me as much as it did later on. But David Lynch was just kind of starting to do his thing, and then he would go into Wild Heart, so it was like something I hadn't seen before. And to me, it was already had cult status and I loved it then. And it, 
seriously holds up so well for me. And I just can't get over Dennis Hopper's uh, acting in this. He does such a good job that in the documentary, he states there was absolutely no improv at all. Uh, Everything he said was in the script. I would never have thought that. Except Uh, for certain things. He said the hand gesture. Yeah, but the dialogue. The dialogue was all natural. All written down. And uh, that that just goes to show how amazing he was in it. I mean, I I like it more now. You know, I saw it again, uh, I think it was last year. I like it more now than I did then. And I liked Mm -hmm. it a lot then. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I put it on again, like last year, I got really excited when I remembered what the movie was about because it had been so long since I'd seen it. I, and I, because I love the idea of an independent investigation and all of the sneaking and stealthy stuff that is involved with that, of not getting caught and you are the good guy being sneaky. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that excites me. I like that. I, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I would spy on neighbors and we would, you know, sneak around and try not to get caught and do the, all that stuff. So watching Jeffrey do that, you know, it was exciting to me and I liked it. And, and, but the highlight for me was every scene that Dennis Hopper was in. Yeah. It yeah. was just, he was so crazy. There's no other character like him. Yeah. And I, I can't even, I can't fathom anyone else doing, I don't care who, who it is. Willem Dafoe. It, nobody could have played that character as well as Dennis Hopper. All that said, I would give it um, probably five men or very close to it. I would love to see, honestly, I would love to see a Blu-ray come out that has the overdubbed original helium uh, trick that they were going to use. Yeah. Just to see what yeah. that would be like. But that would, you know, <laughs> would it be that creepy or would it be hilarious? Would it be like that? And and I And I think that Lynch wanted to use that thing so bad that eventually he did in a very random scene in wild heart with that guy at the bar because he he ended up he doing used that. the hand yes he used the healing. well he used well, it, it was more like a sped yeah. up yeah 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 more he, like a chip the same, like this <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, so is there anything that important that you feel that you took away from uh watching blue velvet any kind of moral you know i am um, I don't want to keep quoting this book, but I do want to quote this book because <laughs> I felt like, you know, watching it, you know, I had, I had a lot of thoughts and, and, but I felt like my, my thoughts really got honed in when I began reading uh, different articles and things like that. Now, people who are watching the videos, they'll see that a lot of the quotes or uh, articles and the people who write them, that those are, uh, there's screenshots of those that will appear in the video. But there, there's a quote about this when talking about, People's reaction to the film and even my own and even my wife, right? The reaction and even people who are watching this, who may have seen it and go, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're talking about this, you know, or, or whatever people who may go and watch it and go, dude, what did this guy convince me to do that, that um, I want to leave them with this because I think that it's something that was really good. Lynch was asked about um, politics and religion about this. He said, there's a political issue to this, the Chris Rodley. Okay. From this book. And he says, even if you're not particularly politically motivated, the work inevitably has a political dimension when it's released into the culture. And it's a little bit of an extended quote, but, you know, forgive me. He says, if you're a politically motivated uh, or thinking person, you'll see everything that comes out in terms of politics. 
if you're a very religious person, you'll see everything that comes out in terms of religion or religious things. So you just have to concentrate on your work and put it out. I think politics are at one level. And if you don't go above that level, you're going to be stymied and frustrated. It's the never ending dilemma, the no win situation, two sides, so opposed, so articulate, but one doesn't listen to the other and things never change. And anything that makes a difference happens outside of it anyway. It just seems like a horror story. And this is the, this is the, the, this blew my mind. This part here, he says, Riley says, I don't even like to use the phrase political correctness because I think it's an invention of the right. But what does that phrase mean to you? Right. So in response to this, and he goes, I'll tell you what it means. It's almost an evil satanic plot. It's a diabolical thing. It's this false way of not offending anyone to be politically correct is to be so sort of lukewarm. And in this weird little spot where there's no offense committed, it's like hiding. And you know, the moral of this to me being an admittedly nostalgic dude. Okay. I am nostalgic in a lot of ways is that I like, I like classics. I like classical music. I like muscle cars, man. I like those big heavy tanks that are super, you know, you get in an accident with them things, dude, and the car ain't hurt, but you might be mangled, right? But the car is fine. And in the, the gas guzzler, man, I just, I, I, I love that era. I love the style. I love the feel of it. Um, but at the same time, I have, as I've grown up um, and as I've gotten older and as I've seen life in the world, I've begun to see more of that underbelly and not to flee from it. There's been times where I've been so revolted by, by it that I've to, to fall into an escapism. And I feel like this movie is a good reminder that there's, there's a place for escapism. We're watching a movie, but at the same time to make it so that we recognize the problems that persist. We recognize how some of that even affects us individually and that we don't keep ourselves from looking at it and that we we admit these these forces that we admit the presence of them the foundation of them even going back way back in time and that in doing so we can have realistic conversations on how to better ourselves and how to better our world and i think that i think it's this this movie is a great mechanism for seriously minded people to do that all right man <laughs> it's, it's not very funny <laughs> no, no it's, so okay so i i got super serious man I, I i was on a level with everybody you know what what's uh what did you take away from this man is there a moral to this story dude is it is it am i looking too deep into this is there something deeper essentially i i think so i i think you know i have moments where uh you know i miss my mom i don't see her as much as i'd like but I think that what I took away from here is if I'm ever having one of those moments, I think all I have to do is maybe huff some ML nitrate and uh, the nearest woman becomes my mom and I'm good to go. <laughs> oh, I, and the thing is, man, I'm like taking you so seriously because I'm coming off the, the tail end of this real serious heartfelt moment. And you're talking about your mom and I'm like, oh, yeah, man, he's talking about his mom. And I think it's a safe moment to take a drink. And I'm sitting there and as soon as you say that, dude, I practically choked on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, you don't want to have a mommy moment up in the <laughs> no. 
Oh my gosh. Well, man, thank you so much for encouraging me to watch this actually, you know, and for getting me into David Lynch, dude, it's, it's a really, it's actually changed my life in a lot of cool ways, man. It's made me more interested in painting. Uh, It's reinvigorated my interest in, in music and moods with writing, Uh, broadened my horizon with trying to get the tone of characters and focusing on things like light and darkness and shadows and, and stuff like that. And it, it's really, it's been a a real, uh, um, fountain of creativity diving into this stuff man whether it's wild of heart or twin peaks or and we should eventually down the road man i don't know if we can do a twin peaks one because there's like a four hour long analysis of the show that supposedly ruins it for everybody <laughs> says, this is the meeting in four and a half hours but i i'm really grateful man you uh you definitely have had a big impact on my life not only with your writing and stuff you know with Skullface boy and stuff which is lynchian and even my son today saw the back in the description man and he's like lynch papa and i said yes man for real it's it's an influence on chat and so i'm really grateful dude and this was this was a really cool time and of course i love talking with you on the show chad yes yes it, you know what you were just saying about uh there's something really, really satisfying about turning somebody onto something, be it music or, or, you know, David Lynch, there's something really satisfying about somebody just taking that ball and running with it. That doesn't always happen. You know, not everybody's going to connect with what you connect with, but when someone does, it's it's very gratifying. So yeah, that's that's cool to hear, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that you and I can share that, that love for something so oddball. Dude, and it is totally oddball, man. And it's it's a bummer because I know that you know we don't want to we don't want to make this the David Lynch show, right? <laughs> like you know, because we do yeah. mention him a lot, but he's a big he's he's a big impact. I mean, this is a really big you know it's a really cool deal. And so yeah, I'm looking forward also to to uh, to learning more about even people like Kubrick. You know, I've I've watched Kubrick a couple Kubrick films, mm-hmm. only really The Shining, and we still got to talk about that. It's gonna be a fun episode, yeah. man. Yeah, we're we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah yeah uh but to learn more about these different different artists and these these directors and stuff and uh and see how they match up man in 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 time because it's this has been a really cool ride and it's always a bummer dude at the end of the show because we do this once a week man it breaks my heart that we gotta say goodbye yeah yeah Yeah. me too man but appreciate everybody listening and uh please reach out to us subscribe to youtube to uh wherever it is that you subscribe podcast to Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Deezer, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Follow us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Email us at paleocheese, P-A-L-E-O-C-H-E-E-Z-E at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for for listening, hanging out with us. Hi. I'm John Baldisberger, host of Madness Heart Radio. Join me each week as I discuss writing, living, life, and horror with some of the coolest people in the industry. Dr. Writers, directors, actors, and really anyone at all that's involved in scaring people's pants off. Can't wait for you to join us, but until then, stay safe, but stay scared.